Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, Solar Warrior, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for listening to Suncast. Not today, but every week and every month and every year for the last six years. Many of you have followed along in this entire journey, not just the 400 episodes, but we founded Suncast and launched the podcast you're listening to right now exactly six years ago. My birthday falls on October 6th. Thank you for the many messages that I received yesterday, uh, for those of you listening on the 7th. But also Suncast's birthday is on October 6th, and we've completed our sixth cycle around the sun and more than 400 episodes that you have enjoyed. Thank you for listening. I have a special request before we jump into this episode. If Suncast has meant anything to you at all, I would love for you, to the extent that you want to, to be a part of my anniversary episode that I'm putting together over the weekend for next Thursday's episode. The simple ways that you can be a part of it are twofold. The first is go find my my post from Wednesday, October 6th on LinkedIn and leave me a comment about what episodes, what moments, what learnings or takeaways has Suncast meant for you? What's your favorite episode or what's your favorite moment? How has Suncast impacted your life? I'd love to know, not just because it's the sixth anniversary and I'm feeling sentimental about the fact that we created this thing that's now six years old, but also I'm always looking to see how our work impacts the world around us. And I want to hear from you. The second way you can go to mysuncast.com. And if you scroll down, you'll see a button that says, leave Nico a voicemail. That's the way you can actually get your voice into next week's episode. So for those of you who like that sort of thing, you'll have 60 seconds to lay down an audio track and I'll incorporate as many as practical into next week's episode. I would love to. It's my way of giving back to you. Uh, it's obviously uh, a way for me to learn from you as well. So if you want to leave a voicemail, that's easy. Go to mysuncast.com, scroll down, you'll see the leave Nico a voicemail tag. You click on that, it'll open up a little thing called SpeakPipe and you can speak your well wishes or your, hopefully your thoughts on why Suncast should keep existing, what, what it has meant to you, what are your favorite moments and takeaways, and maybe even what you are looking forward to as we grow into our seventh and eighth and ninth and 10th years, and not just 400, but 4,000 episodes. Thank you for listening. Here we go with today's episode. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors, to another episode of Suncast. Thanks for lending me your ears and, of course, the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that is your time. I am so incredibly grateful that you're investing it here into this conversation. For whatever reason, you clicked play, download, and we're going to spend the next hour with you 
helping you understand how the solar market works. Uh, if you're new here, I know you're going to get a ton of value out of this episode. Uh, I just want to thank you once again for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Hope you'll come back and subscribe to the show. Today's entrepreneur has spent the last two decades determining how the financial sector can contribute to the clean energy transition. We're going to learn about the lessons from working in public service on Capitol Hill, all the way to building a business that is in the top echelon of financing the solar projects that are going on your home and mine. Eric White is the CEO and founder of Dividend Finance. Perhaps you've heard of Dividend. They've been in this space for quite a while, operating out of California with offices all around the United States and serving many of the leading solar installers across the United States. Today, we'll dig into what it takes to scale this business uh, on the back of the financial instruments that help make it all possible. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show as that's going to make sure that you are not going to miss our twice weekly content just like this one. Of course, you can always check out more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. And I really want to thank you for those of you who go over there and listen to back catalog episodes and share them on LinkedIn and your takeaways. Thank you for that. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, as I just mentioned, we've got Eric White on the show today, and I'm always excited to have someone who has been a leader and a pioneer in a segment of the solar industry that many would say is a bit of a black box, but a necessary lever to get this industry into the stratosphere to to take over in the clean energy transition. And uh, I'm stoked to have Eric on the show. Welcome. Great to see you again, friend. Thanks, Nico. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. You've made uh, you've made quite a, a name for and a place for yourself in the company of Dividend. But I know that as none of this ever comes easy, there are some really fun things that I hope we'll be able to share today with our Solar Warriors and the Suncast tribe about what it takes, how to dig deep and do work that has meaning, not just that 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 brings profit. Eric, you know, in looking at your background, you have uh, you have an interesting path to dividend. It, was there early in your life or career any influence, perhaps from your family or early mentors, that you feel prepared you from a financial perspective to be able to stand in the place of of CEO of effectively a bank as you are today? Absolutely, and and as as often is the case. Our parents tend to be uh, very influential in shaping our career decisions. Like many kids, uh, I ended up uh, pursuing a similar career to my father, who uh, who had a high finance background. So, you know, gr- grew up with uh, lots of finance talk around the kitchen table. You know, while I thought I was uh, on a, on track to uh, really pursue more of a, a career in politics and maybe even become president one day. Uh, after having uh, spent about seven months in, in Washington, D.C. on the Hill as a U.S. Senate page during high school, I uh, decided that I could be more impact- impactful and really kind of pursue my dreams better in the private sector. I often ask the question, what career path did you not go down, but I always thought you would. You wanted to be president, huh? First, it was an astronaut until I realized I was claustrophobic. At least I was <laughs> as a little kid. So that wouldn't really work. And you, like me, are wearing glasses and uh, not many astronauts are allowed to go into space with glasses. So there are some limiting factors to um, to being a jet pilot. 
Uh, what, who's your favorite president so far? Uh, Roosevelt, for sure. Yeah. Next question is which which Roosevelt? Teddy. Cool. What and what about Teddy's economic policy inspired you to want to follow in his footsteps? Uh, I wouldn't say I necessarily want to follow in his footsteps per se. I think uh, uh, just his story, uh, even independent of of his time as president, is just fascinating. Uh, really growing up as kind of a frail kid who over- overcame his his physical uh, limitations to become a very masculine, athletic uh, force of nature. Uh, whether it was kind of leading the Rough Riders, riding a horse up the hill into battle uh, in Cuba during the the uh, Spanish-American War, uh, whether it was you know riding across the Badlands by himself in the middle of South Dakota in the, in the freezing cold to try to tend to his cattle ranch uh, with you know no one within 100 miles of where he was in the middle of the winter, he was you know very unreal and and almost kind of uh, superhuman. Uh, in pretty much every aspect of his life. Um, so I think, th- you know, that's why I kind of fa- find him very compelling, uh, even if I don't necessarily aspire to be just like him. Eric, as I look at uh, your career trajectory, you know, initially thinking, following in, in the footsteps of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, going and interning on Capitol Hill, being a page, your career turned back, as you said, to high finance. Uh, you know, it's, it's tempting to believe that having a career in, you know, traditional banking, Merrill Lynch, spending uh, time kind of growing in uh, an infrastructure fund, that you have this career path charted out for you that, you know, really includes just banking in general traditional sense or traditional finance. At what point did you see a transition towards clean energy? When did it become something that uh, became uh, a siren call for you such that it would change ultimately the direction your career was headed? So, you know, as, as you alluded to, uh, I was on a very traditional uh, kind of financial career trajectory, uh, investment banking, private equity. And, you know, it was kind of at the, at the point in my career where I'd decide, do I, uh, do I go back to, to HBS, GSB, and, or some other uh, MBA program, get an MBA, and then continue on a private equity uh, type path, as, as many of my peers uh, uh, you know, very successfully did? Or do I try to chart my own path that's a little bit different than everyone else around me? Uh, and, and naturally, living in the Bay Area, entrepreneurship is just, it's in the air. It's hard to avoid. It's, it's uh, almost to the point of annoyance sometimes. I think I kind of had a real realization one day that you only live once. The world is moving to a more distributed operating system on many different levels. And there's a major uh, climate wave coming that needs to be addressed. And there's a real opportunity to, to do something about it. I was young, I was single, and really had no attachments holding me down from taking a risk. Um, so, you know, there, it was kind of a situation of, you know, when, when in Rome, let's, let's do something different. So for those maybe don't know anything about your background and aren't just staring at your LinkedIn profile, you went from, uh, you know, Merrill Lynch in Texas and school in New Orleans to uh, your first stint in energy and power in London. I'd love to hear how you, uh, how you navigated the transition, not just not from the U.S. to London, but rather from London back to San Francisco, you just alluded to the fact that you were in San Francisco and you were working for American Infrastructure 
at what point did you realize you wanted to come back and, and be in San Francisco, the place that precipitated this awareness for you? Yeah. And, and maybe even bef- before I answer that question, uh, I'll start with, you know, h- how did I end up in kind of e- the energy sector? So uh, during my junior year of, of undergrad at Tulane, I did a study ab- abroad semester in Vienna, Austria. And it just so happened that a, a group of businessmen from Louisiana, who I happened to know, were attending an OPEC summit in Vienna. Uh, at the time, they were trying to build the first uh, oil refinery in the U.S. since 1978. Uh, in a sugarcane field in southeast Louisiana, and uh, we're at the OPEC summit meeting with uh, a bunch of mi- Middle Eastern oil and gas companies uh, to potentially fund the project. But they were they were kind enough to uh, inv- allow me to tag along to some of their meetings. Uh, I think I had always been intrigued about energy. I remember I think when I was 14 or 15, I read a book on hydrogen fuel cells. So I think energy was always an intri- intriguing concept to me. Um, but you know, uh, sitting in these meetings with uh, the movers and shakers of the oil and gas industry, I think re- really was uh, was a uh, a pivotal moment in in kind of uh, crystallizing my future with respect to my career. So I, I think there was really two fundamental themes that uh, you'll see run throughout my entire career that really started at that moment: uh, finance and energy and power. You know, after after spending that semester in Vienna, uh, got back to New Orleans and immediately began applying for jobs at all the big uh, investment banks in energy and power M and A. Um, so originally started as you, as you alluded to, Nico, uh, with Merrill Lynch in Houston uh, in their M and A group covering energy and power. What that really meant was we we were covering the dirty part of energy and power primarily. These were oil and gas companies. Although, you know, at, at the time, this was really the, the early parts of, of the shale revolution here in the U.S., um, which I, I think in many ways I, I viewed as a bridge to a more sustainable future with clean natural gas. Aubrey McClendon, the, uh, one of the fathers of, of the shale revolution and founder, CEO of, of Chesapeake Energy, did an incredible job convincing really the entire country that natural gas was a cleaner, better alternative to oil, which... I don't think he's necessarily wrong, but I think it really oversold the clean benefits of natural gas that really aren't aren't, aren't in existence. You know, I think certainly the shale revolution dramatically accelerated the U.S. move off of, of foreign oil and gas. But you know, to say that the, that it was a bridge to a more sustainable future, I think retrospectively was a very naive a naive thought at the time. Be that as it may. I did actually spend probably about 10% of my time covering covering renewables companies in the U.S. Uh, while working on an oil and gas investment banking team. You know, I, I found the the clean tech space to be you know very very interesting. Although at the time, the economics really supporting pretty much any type of renewable energy uh, in the U.S. were not especially compelling, with really the exception of maybe some wind projects in West Texas. But you know, I, I'm I'm firmly a believer of you need proper economic alignment alignment of incentives in order for something to really take hold. And at the time I was starting my career, you know that those economics really were not there for any type of renewable energy. So I, I do remember covering some of the early biofuel companies, all of which are are long defunct at this point. This was you know long before there was really a compelling economic uh, case for most renewables. And going back to your question, yeah, so so moved over to London in um, in 2010 after the Bank of America acquisition of Merrill, 
you know, continuing to cover the energy and power space with a uh, with a focus primarily on on natural gas companies in Eastern Europe and Norwegian uh, drilling companies, with a few uh, uh, European utility companies sprinkled in there as well. But I think you're asking, you know, how, how did I deal with the move back to the U.S.? So I think, you know, when I was in London, quite frankly, I didn't really ever expect to live in the U.S. again. That was until I spent one winter in London uh, and realized that it gets dark at like two, uh, two o'clock in the afternoon and quickly came to the realization that I was not going to spend another winter in London uh, as much as I loved it. At the time, there was a, uh, a private equity fund in, in the Bay Area that happened to have a, a kind of a, a strategic focus on the area of master limited partnerships, which I happened to have quite a bit of experience with from on the investment banking side, covering natural gas pipeline uh, and midstream companies, which are probably, at least at the time, were the, the, the most active users of the master limited partnership structure under the U.S. tax code. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with master limited partnerships, it's effectively a corporate tax pass-through entity that's made available under the tax code and really pertains to qualifying income sources that primarily relate to energy, infrastructure, and, and real property businesses. So it just so happened that this this firm in the Bay Area was, was looking for uh, an associate with MLP experience coming out of investment banking. They found me in London. Uh, I had visited a friend in uh, in San Francisco during college, loved the city, and you know it didn't take too much convincing to have me jump across the pond. Makes a lot of sense. So sitting in in San Francisco as uh, as I was as well as over in Oakland around that's this time from you know 2011 to 2013 2014, you start seeing companies like uh, Sun Edison taking big bets. You start seeing First Solar really starting to grow. You see some of the early companies like Clean uh, Clean Capital, others that are making big bets now on the solar space. What was the narrative for you that started to change the way you perceived the opportunities and gaps in renewable power versus fossil fuel? Yeah. And, and, and quite frankly, it didn't necessarily even start with that question at all. I think w- w- what really kind of led me down the path of what eventually became dividend was really a fascination around real asset investing in general. When I say real asset, I'm really referring to anything in infrastructure, energy, or real property, uh, especially at the micro scale. The one thing I didn't mention before I moved back to the to the United States from London, I was uh, giving strong consideration to moving to Nairobi, Kenya to partner with my then uh, roommate in London to raise an impact investment fund focused on off-grid renewables in rural East Africa. He ended up doing it. I didn't. What kind of that that consideration process really made clear to me was that the developed world had developed, had really built many of its operating systems bass backwards, energy and power markets probably being the best example. It makes absolutely zero sense that the point of generation of any sort of resource should be in geographic disparity to the actual consumption of that resource. It's just inefficient. Yet here we are in the developed world with you know, centralized hub and spoke models uh, really uh, governing all kind of uh, resource distribution aspects of our lives. It was highly inefficient. And I started seeing really a transition starting to take hold uh, that Quite frankly, uh, you know, it wasn't really required in much of the the less developed world uh, to a more distributed resource uh, operating model with 
energy and power markets probably being the, the leader in that regard. There's a couple of questions that I think about with regards to starting a business. One circles around the, the idea and the other is, so the idea that could create revenue, the, you know, the revenue model that would work and seeing opportunity or gaps in the market. The other is the notion that you are the right person to start something. Could you tie those two together for me? You're working for an MLP. You have your, you know, you have a bright career ahead of you. You've been groomed in investment banking. You, you could be making a lot of money in investment banking across all energy assets, working out of San Francisco and enjoying life. Why take the route of entrepreneurship and the, um, the headwind of the solar coaster? Yeah, I mean, I think it requires a certain level of personal confidence and conviction within your own capabilities and abilities, uh, as well as, uh, you know, whatever, whatever kind of the opportunity is that you're pursuing. That combined with a little bit of, uh, you know, 20-something uh, naivety to, to help you out a little bit along the way. What's the problem then that uh, Dividend was created to solve? So we were really created to solve the capital barriers that were inhibiting the acceleration of a transition to a more distributed energy future. You know, I think at the, at the time, lease and power purchase agreements were the predominant way that residential solar systems were financed. In fact, there wasn't a loan product available in the market outside of, you know, an, an FHA energy efficient home improvement product that was really not kind of a, a scalable, usable product for solar. And there was three players that controlled all flow of capital to the lease and PPA market. And there was just massive inefficiencies in how capital was being allocated across the various stakeholders, whether it would be the consumer, uh, investors on the on the capital market side, contractors. And, you know, what we identified was an opportunity to introduce a loan product to the resi solar space that really created better alignment of incentives across the different stakeholder groups uh, and ultimately, you know, would drive, uh, you know, more uh, stable, sustained growth of residential solar for years to come. Was that a unique product at the time or was, did you have your own like spin on creating? No, I mean, uh, there, there wasn't any product like that in the market. Uh, hmm. Admiral's bank was, was doing a little bit of solar leveraging an FHA title one loan program. But I, I would say there's a lot of challenges with that product. One, one being you kind of had to go through all the bureaucratic underwriting and red tape associated <laughs> with the FHA just to, uh, to get a loan approved as well as the fact that the Title I pro, uh, loan product was actually secured by a lien on the home in a second position, which yeah. is kind of a non-starter for many, uh, for many homeowners. So th th this yeah. is really kind of a, a brand new product altogether, at least in the context of Resi Solar. Do you remember the moment where you felt like you had unlocked the secret that gave you the confidence of like, oh, I could do this. I could actually go start the company that solves this problem. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that there was one kind of aha uh, defining moment where, I, you know, I kind of looked in the mirror and said, Eric, you are ready. Go pursue your dreams. Uh, it, it wasn't like that. I think it, it, it was really gradual um, and it, it was a function of, you know, developing confidence in, in my technical skills and uh, my communication skills and my leadership skills and really my, uh, my my poise as the face of an organization after being kind of a, a middle-level investment professional at a private equity fund, where you're not the guy talking and leading the meeting, you're the you're the guy that's kind of asking questions, you know, around whoever's leading that meeting, and 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 that that shift 
you know, quite frankly, was not that was not that easy for me. I'm by nature an introvert and have become an extrovert over the last 15 years or so. Um, but, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It was actually, a, you know, a really rewarding uh, a set of experiences going from someone that was kind of a fly on the wall in meetings to the person having to lead meetings because you're, you're forced to really refine your communication skills and present well in a meeting if you ever want to have people follow you, if you ever want to raise money, if you ever want to pursue your goals. Do you feel like there are some specific tools that you can reach back in your memory and think, okay, this, these things that I or was trained in at, uh, in investment banking or even at uh, American Infrastructure, I now am able to leverage and use mental models, management tools, things like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, a couple of things. One, it, it comes down to really getting comfortable being uncomfortable. In order to really make any sort of change in your life, requires you to go outside of your comfort zone by definition. Unless you're willing to make yourself vulnerable and take a little bit of risk, it's really tough to, to make yourself better and to improve as an individual, as a professional, and as a leader. It's really taking that first step that's the hardest. And then as you start to take kind of more steps and, and get further outside of your comfort zone, it becomes more natural to try different things, to make yourself vulnerable uh, to the point where it's, it's really not uncomfortable anymore when you do want to uh, do something different. When you made that decision to step out on your own, uh, what was the what were the first few problems you needed to solve? Team funding. How did how did you think? How did you conceptualize going about that? Yeah. So you know, when we started Dividend, you know, I think the 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 one thing that I would I think is very important that I'll call out is we were not from the solar industry. Uh, my background was energy finance, mostly dirty energy finance, self admittedly, and I think what 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 that allowed us to do was to bring a unique perspective to an industry that at the time was subscale, immature, and and had very great people working in it, but not necessarily people that came from uh, traditional finance backgrounds. Or even traditional power. <laughs> exactly. So I think that worked to our advantage out of the gate in the sense that, you know, we, we really were, had a fresh slate, fresh perspective, and had, had no legacy biases that kind of constrained our thinking on on how to approach the space, but yeah, I mean, problem number one is how do you how do you how do you actually pay the bills? How do you build a technology platform? Up until starting Dividend, I was absolutely petrified of anything related to technology. It was just so foreign to me. Um, so really, kind of figuring out how to put the pieces together uh, on the technology side, I think, was at least a big mental hurdle that that took took some time and challenge uh, challenges to overcome. And I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to be a technology person today, but I feel quite comfortable with, you know, uh, speaking to pretty much any any aspect of technology, at least at a 30,000 foot level. Is that also was were you emboldened or empowered in, by bringing folks on to the team? And you mentioned now you guys have a lot of employees, but you have to always start with the first employee. What was your first hire and how did you think about the where you had gaps and needed to backfill? Yeah, so our, our first hire was a. Uh, was well, actually there's two people that we hired at about the same time. One was a very seasoned uh, solar industry veteran, Andrew Truitt. You know Andrew, uh, who's on the board of NABSEP, as as much of an OG as they would say uh, as anyone in the sector. And then separately, uh, a gentleman named Matthew Davies, who we brought on as our chief technology officer. Our kind of biggest areas of of our gaps in our own experience was the solar industry and technology. So. 
it was kind of natural that uh, those were our first two hires. How'd you find Andrew? So we found him through a uh, GLG uh, subscription uh, that was used by my old uh, private equity fund for talking to experts across various networks. Uh, it just so happens they really never used their GLG subscription. Um, so I took What's the GLG. What's it stand for? Gerson Lerman Group. Okay. Um, so th- th- this, it's it's a company that basically facilitates conversations between their subscribers, which are typically hedge funds, private equity funds, uh, consulting fir- strategy consulting firms with experts in a particular field. Lighthouse does a lot of this now. Exactly. And GLG has done exceptionally well over the years. But, you know, you know one, uh, we, we, we spent about a year building dividend while working a day job in private equity. And that, that did come with its benefits, one of which was leveraging their GLG subscription to talk to about 50 different uh, solar industry leaders around the country, many of which were actually on the uh, uh, resi installer side, leading with the question, what are your pain points? Oh, how cool. Well, having spent that year building the concept and now, you know, you've got, what, eight years building the business. What would you say that Dividend is fundamentally doing differently in the marketplace? That, and maybe even from then to now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that the one defining uh, aspect of, of how we've kind of operated as a business since day one was really taking a consultative approach with how we interacted with our stakeholders. And I think that that was largely just a function of the fact that I was coming out of a private equity uh, environment where, you know, I, I had a, a portfolio of companies. You know, much of what I did outside of actually buying new companies was helping the existing companies that we uh, that we controlled, you know, realize value in uh, in their operations. Um, so in, in the same way that, you know, I was supporting portfolio companies of the private equity fund, I would take a similar approach to how we interacted with solar installers. That were really our, our kind of initial customer base, and I'll, I'll give you a couple anecdotes. Uh, so, so you know, outside of the loan product that we've been developing, which I think we, we had very high degree of confidence was uh, better than any any financing option available at the time in the market. But outside of that, uh, in the conversations that we had with with some of these early installers that we uh, that we were connected with. Uh, and, and asking that question, what are your pain points? I think we learned a couple things. Like, you know, w- one, the incumbent financing providers uh, had developed quite a bad reputation with uh, especially the middle size uh, long tail installer universe by the way that they interacted with them. And I'll, I'll just leave that at that for now. Uh, sec- separately, there was a lot of local and regional contractors around the country that wanted to be really good operators wanted to grow their businesses and were genuinely uh, uh, concerned about the, the quality of their work and the experience and product they delivered to their customers, but lacked the operational uh, prowess, experience, tools, and capital uh, to really realize their dreams on their own. So a, a lot of what we did in the early days was really kind of help you know the, the, the regional contractor compete with the solar cities of the world by giving them tools that they might otherwise not be able to develop on their own. So, for example, in one of my first meetings, a contractor that we were that we were meeting with uh, showed us a, a, a solar sales proposal they had just used for uh, a pitch with uh, with a, cost, a prospective customer. And after flipping to the second page of that sales proposal, uh, I noticed that there was a graph that had an X and a Y uh, axis, 
but there wasn't anything on the actual graph itself. Uh, it was just a, a, a total bust. The quality of the marketing materials were, were just not, they were garbage. Uh, no consumer would have ever signed a, uh, a contract with this installer based on those materials unless they were drunk. So, you know, with, with that learning, uh, we went back and started, you know, considering our, our other ways that we can help build a sales proposal tool for, uh, for our install, installer partners. And Phil Meachin, who's still on our team today, who oversees our product, uh, began building a, a proprietary uh, sales proposal tool, leveraging Microsoft Excel and, and kind of with, with APIs into various utility modeling or, or rate modeling uh, services that really uh, became, quite frankly, the gold standard on solar residential solar sales proposals into perpetuity. If, if you, you know, the, the, the sales proposals that you still see out there today have a strong resemblance to the early templates that we created with this tool that we had built. Wow, so that, that is phenomenal. And that's that's kind of just one example of the the the, the way that we would consult with with our installation partners. And it's it's evolved over the years. Whether it's providing them with access to NABSEP trading, uh, whether it's uh, providing them with uh, targeted leads uh, for customers. Um, so you know, we, we we listen to the market. We certainly like to think we can predict where the market's going and sometimes sometimes we're right sometimes we aren't but what's really the most important thing for us is that we're responsive to our customers needs and we're delivering true value to them you're probably familiar with energy Toolbase. i mean nearly 1500 organizations worldwide utilize etb developer to quantify the savings and economics of their projects but did you know that etb provides a comprehensive suite of software products to help model control and monitor solar and energy storage projects all in one platform? That's right. I know you're probably familiar with their industry-leading modeling, but controls, monitoring? Yeah. Acumen EMS software is actually fully integrated with energy storage giants like BYD, Delta, Dynapower, and Sokomec, leveraging AI and machine learning to forecast, control, and optimally discharge energy storage systems operating in the field. Or maybe you are looking for ETB Monitor to gain complete transparency into the operational performance and true dollar savings of your operating fleet? Well, if I were you, I'd schedule a Zoom with one of ETB's knowledgeable account managers. You can mention Suncast when you sign up for your free trial and you get a 30-day extended free trial. You can also just click on the tool-based logo at mysuncast.com or in our newsletters or right there in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're listening to this on to take full advantage of this free trial. Don't wait. Hey, want to protect your margins and get projects over the line fast? Look, we all know solar development teams waste millions of dollars every year on inefficient development. We both know that the old school methods of engaging with stakeholders, collaborating on documents, and even pitching investors is literally starving you of the one thing that you won't get back, time. You need greater velocity in your deals that only comes from tried and true duplicatable processes so your margins aren't constantly under attack. And in an increasingly competitive marketplace where even big oils getting in on the green gold rush, the right software will help keep your team focused and in control of what really matters. Lucky for you, Enian Project Manager is purpose-built software made for developers by developers. Sign up for free now and start moving faster with software made just 
for you. Go to enian.co and see what Enian Project Manager can do for you. That's E-N-I-A-N dot C-O. It's always fascinating for me to think about kind of those three inflection points. One is the decision to start an idea and, and having some differentiated way to think about the problem. The other is the team that is necessary to address the problem. The third is really kind of structuring the capital stack around it to make sure that it's sustainable. On point number two, team, is there anything particularly distinguishes the team or the, or the model that you have for building a team from others in the marketplace? As it relates to the team, I think it's important to call out the fact that you know teams are living, breathing organisms. They go through phases just like toddlers uh, go through phases, uh, and and you know the the, the members of that team uh, come and go over time. Um, so I, I'd say Dividend's gone through at least two to three distinct cultures, and probably two to three distinct uh, kind of core, uh, core core teams as well. Uh, that couldn't be more different. In, in the early years, uh, the culture was run a million miles an hour and we'll sleep when we die. I think we had a, a seven-day-a-week mandatory work policy for two years. Eventually, I think everyone burned out a little bit, including me. But I think, you know, you, you really need to, to ensure that, one, the people around you are people that you like. Uh, life is too short to work with a-holes. Um, so, uh, really, really building uh, a group of people that you like being with makes everything just so much easier. It doesn't matter if you have a team of, of people that are exceptional intellectually, exceptionally in, in kind of every other sense, but you don't like being with them. Uh, you'll hate your life, you'll hate your job, and you will fail as a company. Um, so I think you know that's that's really a, a prerequisite for any uh, any consideration as it relates to constructing a team. Um, but I, I think you know one of the things that I, I will give myself credit for is is knowing what I'm good at and knowing what I'm not. You know, we we've always taken the approach of let's if, if there's a certain knowledge or skill gap on our team, let's go out and find the best person that can help fill that gap uh, that we also like working with. And you know, not too dissimilar from when I entered Solar with with an outsider's perspective. I think there's there's many other parts of the sector that still are rather uh, immature with respect to the professional talent and caliber of talent occupying those those particular areas within the industry. Uh, one being uh, c- consumer lending backgrounds, uh, whether it relates to uh, compliance and and regulatory, uh, whether it relates to credit risk, uh, consumer direct marketing. Um, so I think what you'll find on the dividend team is. Uh, we have a, a, a deep DNA across the organization uh, of, of professionals that have really cut their teeth and spent most or, or all of their careers in consumer finance, uh, including some of the, the top consumer finance uh, uh, banks in the world, Capital One, which is really the first fintech being uh, being one recruiting ground for us. I think I think we probably have over a dozen people on our team uh, that came out of the same group within Capital One. Uh, so, and, and a lot of these people have also worked, worked together or at least crossed paths, uh, in, in past lives as well. Is there anything particular about Capital One? Like why Capital One? Would you have a, a dozen people from the same group? Is there something about the way they structure and think about capital? Yeah. So, so Capital One is, is arguably the first FinTech and you know, what, uh, amongst other things, what they did a very great job of, especially in the early days was, was their training and development 
first the recruiting, but then the training and development uh, of the already uh, uh, highly vetted people that they did hire with a strong focus on data-driven uh, and analytically oriented decision-making first principles and kind of highly structured, highly reg- regimented uh, approaches to, to problem sol- solving, uh, storytelling, and and uh, kind of the, the data and analytical element that supports all that. It's It seems to me, I mean, there are certainly others, peers of yours like Sunlight that come out of investment banking. Do you feel like this is one of the sort of part of the differentiation. There's kind of really four or five major players in the resi solar finance market right now, um, of which you guys are a big player. Is this something that you feel sets you apart in the marketplace? Like not just the tools, but this uh, experience and expanded understanding of how consumer lending works? Yeah. I mean, I I would say we definitely have a much deeper uh, uh, bench when it comes to deep Consumer finance uh, 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 executive and, and management background, uh, for be- for better or for worse, uh, it's just different. You know, cer- certainly, uh, certainly, there's folks at Sunlight that that you know do have consumer lending experience and 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 others as well. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's as uh, as rampant as it is uh, with dividend. Got it. Mm. And uh, you know, I, I think kind of uh, above and beyond kind of the risk and analytics uh, area that we just spoke to, you know, let's let's not forget that we are a consumer lending business, which means that we're highly regulated. There's a huge burden on us, both reputationally, regulatorily, and legally to protect the consumer and operate within the requirements of not just one regulator, not just two regulators, but the finance regulator in every single state where we operate. We're not a bank. Therefore, we don't we don't have what's called federal preemption where we can operate, you know, pursuant to, to an exported state lending license or just under under federal banking statutes, uh, we're literally required to be licensed in every single state where we operate if it's required to have a license and to uh, adhere to the, the state lending statutes in each of those markets, as well as, uh, you know, to, to obviously operate within the the requirements of the CFPB and federal organization, federal regulators as well. So we are a highly, highly regulated business. I, I think, you know, one of the other benefits that you get of, of having a, a, a management team and leadership with experience from the consumer lending uh, sector is you, you absorb a lot of that uh, regulatory compliance uh, DNA as well. Well, on the flip side of that, being regulated is in the interest of consumer advocacy, effectively protecting, as you said, consumers from otherwise uh, potentially predatory practices that are un, uh, unfair to them. Um, you and I have seen um, more than our fair share of that in the 15 years we've watched the solar industry grow um, from sales guys who misrepresent to lead gen companies who say, no money down, solar is free. How do you think about as a lender, um, consumer advocacy, where we're at now, where perhaps the industry needs to evolve? Yeah, so so it's a, it's a great question. The way I would answer it is there, there's there's strong alignment of incentives here. A happy consumer is a paying consumer from our perspective. So we are very concerned about how how that how how that solar project, how that solar loan is communicated to the consumer. They really understand what they are and what they aren't getting uh, when they make a decision. 
and that they feel you know that they're being treated fairly uh, and are actually generating value, what, whether it be emotional value or actually utility value um, by virtue of the project that we finance, because it, it, it does directly correlate with the performance of the underlying loans that we make. We're highly, highly aligned uh, with the consumer, independent of any sort of ethical uh, consideration. But of, of course, you know, we want to make sure we're doing right by the consumer for ethical reasons as well. One kind of related point I would make, three of our fir- or two of our first six hires, including Andrew Truett, I mentioned earlier, had kind of their core background in installation best practices and quality assurance, quality control. Um, so Chris Doyle, who is our former chief commercial officer, uh, ran the IBTS uh, solar program. He, along with Andrew Truitt, were two of the authors of SIA's Installer Best Practices Guide. I have no idea what that, that means in today's term. I don't think anyone's ever uh, opened up the Installer Best Practices Guide since 2015. Um, but you know, we, we really were ensuring that we were prioritizing contractor best practices, both in terms of workmanship, in terms of sales practices, you know, for for the very reason I mentioned before, because you know we we believe that, and, and and we were right by the way that a happy consumer is a paying consumer. Right, and also in an industry where not you guys, but competitors, uh, and certainly installers can have an incredibly high either recontracting or cancellation rate um, due to missing specific elements of the contract. It's really important that early on, you can have the kind of DNA in your company that not only recognizes how to um, be aligned with the government regulatory side, just from a pattern matching genetic disposition or predisposition, but as as well to be the advocate in the solar industry that that understands where the installers are coming from and that can identify and help filter early good matches for your programs, meaning yep. installers that you can trust that are actually going to do what you have paid for. Yep. And and it can be tricky yeah. sometimes, you know, there's, there's plenty of contractors out there that are well-meaning. They, they want to do a good job. They want to get better and they just don't, they lack the resources or experience today to be able to do that. So, it, you know, it's, it's really critical that you're able to differentiate between the bad actors and the good actors who are doing a bad job unintentionally. And I'd say that's that's less of an issue today, but certainly back in 2014, 2015, as, as Chris Doyle used to say, at least as it, as it relates to workmanship, there's, there's really no high quality uh, installer out there. They're all equally bad, which I, I think was a little bit of a, uh, an overreach, um, but there, there, there's no doubt the industry has come a long way in terms of implementing uh, best practices that I think are, are much more widely uh, utilized. Eric, I want to, before before we get into some of the lessons learned, I would love to just get a second to think about uh, and reflect on the growth. You know, you guys have been around for a number of years now, and the hardest uh, thing to do is to break that uh, that gravitational force and get to profitability and be able to really start scaling, which clearly you have been able to accomplish. Can you talk a bit about the early days of how you went about <clears throat> funding the venture uh, as you started? And then, you know, what were some of the pinch points or moments of scale that allowed you to really start to accelerate growth? Sure. So when I first entered the industry, a few veterans industry, I would hear casually throw around the term, the solar coaster. <laughs> and I didn't quite know what that meant. Uh, I think it, it 
uh, over time, I, I think I've refined my definition of it, but it, it both uh, refers to kind of uh, internal events and exogenous events. And, mm-hmm. you know, despite, despite much of our success, we've, we've certainly had uh, our trials and tribulations as, as any company have, uh, whether it relates to funding, growth, and, and everything else that comes with running a startup. But back in 2013, we found a dividend. We, we really funded the company originally with friends and family money, um, including our own. Uh, as well as uh, a group of uh, very, very connected individual investors out of uh, New York that provided, provided, provided us originally with about $30 million of asset funding uh, over the first year or so, just to kind of get, get the model started. Uh, but about, about two years in, we were on fire growing 50 100% month over month. Like many other startups, we did hit a funding snag. Uh, we were in the process of closing a pretty significant investment from a very well-established, well-known fund. Uh, and for reasons completely unrelated from us, they, uh, they, they walked away at the last minute. That kind of put us into a tailspin. You know, I, I remember back, I think this was in 2015, being at my parents' house in Florida for Christmas. My dad asked me, so what are you going to do next? Uh, as if he had already written off the possibility of us uh, continuing to, to Surviving. succeed. And, and the, the, part, of the pro- part of the problem was this, uh, this, this situation transpired right around Thanksgiving. For anyone that kind of know, knows the, uh, the, the fundraising environment, the world's pretty much dead from Christmas until after New, or from Thanksgiving until after New Year's. So this couldn't have happened at, at any worse of a time. Um, but we, we were able to persevere uh, and and ended up uh, bringing in a new controlling shareholder, uh, a private equity fund out of Philadelphia called LL, which still controls the company. But there was definitely a uh, about a three month period where things were a little bit dicey. Um, and, and we never really went the traditional venture funding route. Quite frankly, I'm not really sure why. You know, at the time, I, at least I had a conception. I think it's somewhat true that a lot of the the venture investors don't really understand the finance, financial services side of uh, venture investing. I think that's changed a lot in the last couple of years. I think that the fintech VC community has become a lot more sophisticated in actually understanding the the fin part of of fintech. Uh, I'm not sure that was the case five or six years ago. Um, but you know, we, we've traditionally dealt with more Wall Street kind of East Coast type investment. Uh, capital versus the Silicon Valley VC community. With that in mind, uh, as the industry begins to consolidate, Wall Street gets a lot more comfortable with the kind of asset, in particular, the kind of paper that that you all are providing and bundling. Uh, what do you see for 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 the growth of the Solar Plus decade as <clears throat> the remaining hurdles to scale for this industry? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we've already overcome a lot of the capital hurdles, whether it relates to how investors thought about tax equity on on the lease PPA side. Uh, and some of the recapture risk, I think, you know, at least when dividend was started, we, we to, and to be clear, we don't play in the least PPA tax equity world. But I, I think there, Wall Street did struggle a little bit with how to participate in that type of paper when it came to ABS type arrangements. I, don't, I think we've kind of crossed that hurdle. I think we've crossed the hurdle of solar being considered a risky, immature, unknown asset class. As I think I may have uh, mentioned previously, uh, in the early days of dividend, when I was out meeting with Wall Street investors, they would say, "Love your, love your story, love everything about it, but we don't invest in risky asset classes." And I think you know history has shown us uh, what's risky and what's not. But I think we we've really overcome that hurdle. On the equity side, I think we're seeing a tremendous amount of money flowing to pretty much any business that has anything green attached with it. So. There's, there's a lot of money out there. Uh, I'm not actually concerned about the capital side. I'm concerned more so about the ability for businesses to actually execute uh, and deploy that capital in a way that actually generates an ROE. It's one thing if you accomplish 
good, but I think you also need to accomplish financial returns at the same time. You have to have that type of alignment of incentives. Given just the massive amount of capital that's been deployed in probably just the six last six months to nine months alone, uh, it'll be interesting to see whether uh, whether many of these companies, especially on the corporate equity side, are able to deliver against some of their investors' expectations. What, in your experience, erodes that ROE, return on equity? I mean, I think, I think it really depends on the business model. You know, you have anything from technology companies to finance companies to hardware companies to software companies to ser- to more service-based oriented or organizations that all have their their own kind of unique business models, uh, but I think it re- it really comes down to uh, uh, being in the right place at the right time and having the right people there to execute. You mentioned a term that many may not be familiar with: ABS paper. What is that? What is that acronym? That stands for asset backed security or asset backed securitization. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, I don't want folks to get lost in the in the acronyms here. I appreciate that. I would be really interested to know. As you look back over the last seven, eight years, any advice for fellow entrepreneurs in the throes of startup life that you've gleaned stepping out on your own and, and bringing this venture to life? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be somewhat shameless. You're, you're going to have a lot of people along your way tell you why you're wrong and why you'll fail. Those type of people are what we call non-entrepreneurs. From the early days to even more mature stages, there's constantly people that are going to be doubting you. And Probably more often than not, the logic behind their rationale is actually very solid. You know, sometimes it just takes grit and perseverance to overcome and, and innovate. Do you remember a, part- a point in time where your better understanding of the market allowed, gave you a sense of confidence where folks are saying, no, this is crazy. You're going to die a slow, painful death. Like, do do you have day. those moments? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 happens, <laughs> it happens pretty regularly. Uh, yeah. I, I'd say in the early years, it was probably our lack of understanding of the market that kind of gave us that confidence. Uh, oh, wow, so that's call, cool. it, call it mm-hmm. naive confidence. But I think as we talked about earlier, uh, the fact that we were coming in with a fresh perspective from outside the industry, I think played to our advantage, especially in the early years. Yeah, you guys just and you, you're confident in your ability to execute and your ability to, to bring a team in around you that understands where the industry is going, not where we are now. And I think that's one of the failures I've seen in the past of companies that are, were your competitors they were executing on the that year's business plan, not where the industry's going, like skating to the puck, not to the wall. Right. As you think back on the folks that influenced perhaps career pivots or were pivotal in your career decisions, uh, are there any that stand out as influential mentors for you? And what was their guidance? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had lots of mentors over the years, both inside the industry, outside of the industry. And, you know, I'd say that their vi- guidance has varied from you're crazy for doing this to you know, go, go balls to the wall and, and, uh, take, take risk and innovate. So yeah. I think you, you kind of have to take every piece of advice with a grain of salt and take it kind of in the context that it was delivered. Well, Eric, I know that we are coming up on, uh, the, you know, the end of our allocated time together. I'm super grateful for the time you've been able to give us. I have a few more questions if, uh, if I may, and these are more specific to how you as an executive structure, your day, your mindset, your calendar to be effective and optimize your time. Do you have a specific like morning routine or is there a consistent habit or practice that for you has given you leverage in your life or your career? Yeah. I mean, I would say it it ebbs and flows over the years. I think routine is very difficult to keep as an executive and requires tremendous amounts of discipline. And I would also kind of point out that travel kills all routine and and Mm -hmm. discipline. But 
uh, as, as does COVID for that matter. But, you know, I'd say one of the tricks that I've learned, especially during COVID, where kind of all routines and, and structure are completely dis- are kind of completely uh, uh, destroyed. Uh, in terms of my actual cal- calendar planning, I try to block out about a third of my week for what, what, what I call kind of flex time. And, you know, I'll, I'll categorize that flex time with different colors on my cat- calendar. And what that could mean kind of engaging in deep work where I'm really thinking on ha- about how to solve big problems. Uh, you know, maybe I have a ca- an hour blocked out to just respond to emails. Mm-hmm. I'll have an hour uh, blocked out to, to work out uh, or an hour blocked out to respond to kind of uh, unofficial meeting calls. Um, so I think it's it's really important that you don't end up in a situation where you're just on in constant meetings all day, every day, uh, because yeah. it doesn't really allow you to think and, and create real, meaningful, innovative type work. So I want to drill down on this because that sounds wonderful. And I've heard countless YouTube videos that would instruct me to do the same. Here's where I see folks fail. The inability to protect the time that you've blocked. Right. How do you think about a scenario where you've got it set aside for emails, but candidly, like something important comes up or an investor calls or mm-hmm. even your wife calls and you go, oh, I had this time set aside for emails, but then you let that scope creep to, to kind of come in and you allow that call to come in. How do you manage that? I'll actually block out kind of time in my day where it doesn't actually have a specific allocation. And that's where I'll follow up on calls like that. And look, I, I, I'm, I'm not completely bulletproof. Uh, if a call comes in, that's important. I'll take that call no matter what. And unfortunately, there's not really any way around it sometimes, but you, you just have to be as disciplined about trying to keep to that that kind of official calendar schedule and blocks as possible. With regard to self-education, right, the help, like can, being in a position of continuous uh, learning, do you listen to uh, podcasts or read journals or anything like that to inform yourself? How do you consume content in that way? Yeah, I mean, I probably read five to six different periodicals a day. And I don't know, I probably, I probably read two books a month. I wish I read more. Yeah. Well, on that note, I believe that readers are leaders. And we often ask if there is a particular, a particular book that has influenced your life or your leadership style, uh, or perhaps that you've gifted the most that you'd like to share with the audience. Uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of different books. Uh, I'm not sure there's one in particular. Mm. Um, Anything that stands out though, that, uh, I mean, you, just, do you just have just a book the that you go-to? I mean, I wouldn't say that there's kind of one go-to for one comp- comment, but go on the count- topic of calendar uh, scheduling, if you've read the book uh, by Cal Newport, Deep Work, I think that really makes the case uh, for why you need to kind of figure out a specific, a specific routine or schedule to really allow yourself to engage in undistracted work. Yeah, the concept of deep work as um, you know, now cataloged in Cal's book is one that we've had recommended here on the show before. And it's a really, really important concept. Uh, that time blocking is I've found really valuable as well. Eric, before I ask the, the final question, where can folks best engage with you? Where do you like to be found? Where would you send them to learn more about you or your company? Email, LinkedIn, uh, our company website, our, our LinkedIn page, our Facebook page, our, our Twitter handle. For those who are uh, maybe they're not going to go look it up, but they might remember it. What's the website? It's dividendfinance.com. Dividendfinance.com. Of course, it will be linked in the show notes uh, as well. Well, let's end today, as we always do, Eric, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, I think uh, there's obviously a bit of a rivalry slash battle underway between the distributed resource folks and the utility folks who, who controls the behind the meter assets. 
And I, th I think you're going to actually see quite a few utilities successfully execute on uh, DER behind the meter strategies. That's uh, you. You may be the first I've heard suggest that utilities are going to figure it out. They're not going to get not all utilities, but some. Yeah. Okay. Eric White is the founder and CEO of Dividend Finance, and it has been an absolute pleasure to have a chance to glean from your deep understanding of this segment of the solar industry, solar coaster. And uh, thank you for your contribution to helping us level up our understanding as well, Eric. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Wow, you stuck around to the very end. I, I truly appreciate you, Solar Warrior. And I know that Eric does too. Did you learn something new today? What will you be adding to your toolkit from today's session? I hope you'll share it with me or with others in your sphere of influence. As I mentioned at the beginning, Suncast is celebrating six years, our sixth anniversary, and I would love it if you'd take a moment with me to reflect on what Suncast has meant to you and to the world around us. To me, it's meant an opportunity to carve out my own path and redefine what freedom means for myself and my family. I could not have done this without you, each and every one of you who listens and engages with us through Suncast. And for our guests like Eric and so many in the 400 plus others who have joined us here on Suncast. If you're not already following along on LinkedIn, I'd really appreciate if you'd hop over there and leave me a comment in my post from Wednesday, October 6th. Let me know what Suncast has meant to you. I'm working on an anniversary episode for next week, and I'd like your input. What are your favorite episodes, favorite moments over the last six years? What would you recommend that others tune into about Suncast and why it has meant something to you at all? Why you keep clicking play on this show? And if you'd like to hear your voice on next week's anniversary episode, well, then you can go to mysuncast.com and click on the Leave Nico a voicemail button that pops up and you can leave me up to a 60 second audio note letting me know exactly what suncast means to you your favorite moments anything else that comes to mind as always if you're eager to keep learning from today or any other episode then you my fellow philomath can find the resources and the highlights from this and every other discussion along with the social media links book recommendations and so much more over on the blog under the episode notes tab at mysuncast.com next week i'll be airing the recent Podcasters Roundtable discussion, along with that anniversary episode that I mentioned. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them, as well as how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors just like you at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And if you'd like to work with me directly to take your career or company to the next level, then click on Work with Nico. That's all for today. I'm going to go hike around Lake Tahoe with my fam. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs> <laughs>